Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. You've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show who are experts in their fields. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics and instead concentrate on research, facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. Your hosts for today's show are myself, Joe Moravchik, and Bruce Moreland. Bruce has co-hosted the KYMN Climate Show with Alan Anderson for four years and is quite active in the Citizens Climate Lobby. Bruce also has a monthly column in the Faribault and Northfield newspapers. And the man sitting across from me is Joe Moravchik retired police officer and longtime coach and administrator of athletic teams. Joe has also taught courses including police science and was once a candidate for the Minnesota State Legislature. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to talk about cybersecurity. What is cybersecurity? What are the threats to cybersecurity systems? And how we are actively countering these threats. Today's show is being pre-recorded on day three of the 12th annual Cybersecurity Summit Eyes Wide Open in Bloomington, Minnesota. I'm really looking forward to this show. Our guest is Sean Riley. He has been the Chief Information Officer for the great state of North Dakota for six years, appointed in April of 2017 by Governor Doug Burgum. Sean has served in IT leadership positions for the past 22 years, where he's demonstrated the ability to transform organizations through his expertise in technology. As interestingly, he's a native of Lanesboro, Minnesota, just down the hill from us. Earlier in his career, he consulted at IBM and other Fortune 500 companies nationally and internationally on network, system security, and compliance, training, e-health, and e-business projects. Another intersection here is that from 2004 to 2017, he worked for the Mayo Clinic in numerous roles, including regional roles as CIO, Chief Technology Officer and Information Management Officer. So he and I shared the Mayo Clinic for about eight years out of that time. Sean and his wife have three children, and when he's not at work, he enjoys being a history interpreter and competitive marksman, and that's pretty cool. You may find him out in full costume as a colonial soldier telling the stories of the American Revolution. Sean Riley, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Well, thank you. Great, great to be here, and uh, well, wonderful intro. I will say my preferred title is IT guy. That's all I need. Uh, I just uh, work in technology and do what I can to make the world a better place. If, if it's fair to say this, you've got a beard and a backpack. You fit right in with the rest of the attendees here at the conference. <laughs> all a bunch of geeks. Very yep. cool. So I'm going to start right off. Uh, wh- what do you mean? What do we mean by cybersecurity? What is what does so, it entails that? So cybersecurity, in the simplest way, today's world has immense amount of technology. Everything is connected. Everything has a computer. Everything's connected to the internet, and all of those things have a purpose of what they do. Well, there's the possibility of using those for other purposes, unintended purposes. 
And all of us have data. We have information about us, whether it's on our phone or about our checking account or our credit cards or whatever it is. Cybersecurity is keeping that information safe and making sure systems do what they were designed to do. And in today's world, we have an unbelievable number of people out there who are trying to exploit our technology. They're trying to steal information. They're trying to change systems to do things that we're not supposed to do. And we defend against that. Wow. And it's, it's, it's really quite a, 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 a it's like a, any other war game where you develop techniques and then they develop new techniques and it's back and forth. Would it be fair to split the uh, types of attacks into those that are designed to gain access and those that are designed to actually use the access once you've gained it? Is that a reasonable split? Yeah, and, and I'd say there's more nuance than that too, but, but certainly in the macro. So we deal with everything from what, what is lovingly called a script kitty, right, which is usually somebody like a 14-year-old kid who's just learning. That would have been me long ago, right? Mm -hmm. I was just learning how to hack, and I start running some programs that are easily downloadable from the Internet. And you go, ooh, look at what I can do, right? And you get all proud of yourself, and then you get a little stronger and stronger and stronger at it. The script kitty is just kind of that, that one child typically learning how to do something. On the other end of the spectrum, we have nation-state actors. We have actors like China and Russia and Iran and others, North Korea, and so many others now that have defined military units that are set up specifically to attack American assets and other assets worldwide. Now, they come in different chunks of what they're trying to do, but usually there's this aspect of intelligence. So they're trying to learn what we have in our environments. They're trying to learn where people are. They're trying to learn what systems do. And that's, that's not creating a problem in, it, in its own right, but it will be used to create a problem. So they gather this intelligence. Once they get that intelligence, then they decide what to do with it. Sometimes it's to change information so that it misrepresents. Sometimes it's to break a system. Sometimes it's used to just steal everything. And oftentimes we see the Russians tend to be very much like a surgeon. They're very much like a scalpel, and they're trying to find something very direct. More often than not, the Chinese aspects that we've had to deal with are more like a chainsaw, where they're a little less uh, meticulous, and it's just give us whatever. Uh, but again, those actors out there are substantial, powerful actors, and they come in all shapes and sizes trying to gather information from us. Interesting. Sean... I read that the North Dakota state government alone has to defend itself against an average of 4.5 billion attacks during a given year. Attacks to the three branches of government, K-12 through education, higher education, and all those citizens touching the state network, an estimated 252,000 daily users. I had no idea of the volume of these types of attacks. What is the objective of the cybersecurity attacks on North Dakota. Yeah, so North Dakota is one of those places that people people underestimate, right? Uh, usually when people are going out to all 50 states, the, the 48th, 49th, 50th state, one of them is North Dakota, unfortunately. Uh, I think you should come up and see wonderful things like the Teddy Roosevelt National Park. It's beautiful up there. But from a, from a military standpoint or a government standpoint or a data standpoint, 
North Dakota is a centerpiece for the United States. So North Dakota is one of the top energy-producing states in the country. Typically, we're number two, right behind Texas. Uh, we have a huge amount of oil and natural gas and energy production in the Bakken. We have a massive aspect of the strategic defense of the United States as two of the three strategic pillars for nuclear weapons sit in North Dakota. We have Air Force Base for both missiles and we have Air Force Bases for the aircraft that are here to defend the country. Uh, additionally, beyond that, we have one of the largest UAS or drone test sites in the entire world. It's a 70,000 square mile test site in North Dakota where we're testing everything from these little 4-inch drones to things that are bigger than a 747. And that drone technology is sometimes military, but oftentimes, most of the time, is commercial, residential, industrial testing, agriculture testing, all of those kind of things. Uh, we have the largest digital farm, right, uh, with the Grand Farm, a site of creating the new robotic autonomous corridors, all of these things that sit inside of North Dakota that bad actors absolutely want to get information on, absolutely want to disrupt. I... I I had no idea that Area 51 had an annex in North Dakota. <laughs> we we would be Area 52. Area 52. So no one has no one's heard of that one. So, yeah, 4.5 billion attacks per year. It's such a daunting number. Where do you start to develop a plan to defend against what appears to be an overwhelming number of daily attacks? Are many of the attacks generated by artificial intelligence? And I guess how many of these attacks do you actually have to deal with hands-on as true threats, true, true threats on a daily basis? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an unbelievably large number of attacks. So 4.5 billion, right? People can't even wrap their head around that, really, right? I mean, it's just this huge number. So let me break it down a little for you. It is 1,100 per minute, right? So how long have we been doing this? Uh, like five minutes? Yeah, so we're at 5,000, 6,000 attacks since we started having our conversation those attacks come in all kinds of forms but in today's world most of the attackers are automated so what they're attacking through using ai as a as a bad actor to to exploit different things to go at different attacks most of the time, they have a catalog of vulnerabilities that are already known. Everybody's known about these for maybe it's a day, maybe it's several years. But they load up that catalog, and they set up their computers to automatically go out and probe and see if they can find those vulnerabilities and exploit those vulnerabilities. From a defense standpoint, we are a defense-in-depth shop, and we are one of the largest defense perimeters in the country, actually, because we have... 252,000 users in our defense perimeter every single day. Uh, just to give you a comparison for the local Minnesota audience, right? So UHG is a Fortune 8, 9, 10 company at any given time. Really, really big organization. They're about half the size defense perimeter that the state of North Dakota is, right? So the state of North Dakota has this humongous defense perimeter, and I just gave the users numbers. We have way, way, way more devices than that. We have other states that we now help to defend, other organizations we help defend across the country. And the only way that's possible is we also have to have artificial intelligence. And today, 
our defense perimeter, I'm gonna I'm gonna count this out, is nine, 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 six nines automatically defended. So at a four point five billion attacks per year, we're up to six nines that is automatically defended through our AI perimeter. That means less than fifty one thousand attacks per year have to be handled by people. Hmm. Right? And what that means then is when you think about this, put this in your mind, right? For those who are not cyber people, think of it as it's Terminator versus RoboCop, right? You got robot versus robot, head smashing each other, and it's about, oh, four and a half billion Terminators versus four and a half billion RoboCops. And our RoboCop only loses about 50,000 out of that, right? So, you know, put that in perspective, right? For the whole year, right, out of those 1,100 per minute, we're defending every single minute all 1100 except for once about every 15 minutes so it's just these mind-boggling numbers right that are really hard to get your head around it's like every tree in north in minnesota not north Dakota. north Dakota does not have as many trees but minnesota every tree in minnesota pick out 50 of them that's how many get through right that's the kind of numbers that you have to look at and it's again it's very very ai driven it's very, very defense team driven. Now, our operational team, we've got over 50 FTEs that defend and have to take care of those incidents. So, so that means each person is handling about 1,000 incidents per year to be able to work through it. So that's three, four, five a day, depending on how they work through their, their week. Uh, but it's, it's a huge amount of stuff. And we have to defend 24-7, 365, every day, every holiday, every moment, every second, because if we don't, something gets through and that thing could be massively impactful to people. <clears throat> North Dakota, of course, would not be the only state under threat from cybersecurity attacks. Do states share cybersecurity threat intelligence? Absolutely. So we have multiple ways that that's been done for many, many years. Uh, it, they are called ISACs, and an ISAC is an information sharing and analysis center. That center is, has been set up for a very long time now. So some of them go back in, in different forms into the 1990s. Some of them, most of them have existed more in the early 2000s uh, with changes that have been going on and realizations from different organizations that the kind of threats we're dealing with, they've been getting stronger. Now, North Dakota has an added component called the JCSOC, and that is the Joint Cybersecurity Operations Center. And that JCSOC has been extended outside of North Dakota to be able to defend against threats and attacks in other locations and to be able to not only share information, but actually have operational defense. So now inside that environment, there are 11 states that are publicly inside that environment. We also have tribal nations. We also have some very, very large school districts that are not able to join their state, their own state, because their own state doesn't have something that can help them today. Uh, we have counties, etc., from around the, the country that are all part of that. And that is a much further definition. So it's beyond information sharing. Instead of, uh, instead of like going to your, your mechanic and the mechanic looks at you and says, hey, you need an oil filter and you need a you need an air filter, that kind of thing, where the mechanic tells you that's what information sharing would be. Then you have to go home and replace it yourself. Well, some of us can do that. Some of us can't, right? In this case, the mechanic says, we have this problem, and I'm going to replace it for you. 
That's where you get into full shared service and full operational defense. So, so does that mean that, that you are part of the defense establishment on the offense side as well as defense? So we, we as a state are not an offensive body. We are purely defensive. Now, we hand information off to all of our federal partners and all the three-lettered agencies everybody's come to love. Uh, we <laughs> give them all the information that we have, and then they can choose how to manage that from an offense um, the most common thing that we have would be something like the FBI, where it's investigating certain types of theft. That's the ones where the FBI gets to go on offense trying to find those criminals. And the nation-state side, that's all up to the federal agencies. They have to figure out how to handle that. Yes, I, I was able to find out that there is an FBI presence here at the conference, at the yes. summit. I don't know if the other agencies are here or not. Oh, absolutely. So Homeland Security is here, Sizer's here, people I've met and talked to myself. There are probably some others, but I haven't talked to them yet. So uh, Not yet. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I read in a NATO report prepping for today that cyberspace is the newest theater of war. Yes. Do you agree with that statement? If so, what are examples of cyber warfare? Where and how is this taking place? Yeah, 100% agree with that. So I've been part of task forces on this cyber warfare aspect here for several years. There, there is a reality. NATO defined the cyberspace as a theater of war just like the Air Force, just like the Navy, just like a ground force for the Army. Cyberspace is very, very real. And what we've seen in Ukraine over this last year absolutely absolutely confirms exactly what we've been talking about so in the early days of the russian attacks into ukraine we saw directed cyber attacks against power plants we saw it against agriculture sites we saw it against water treatment centers we saw it against hydroelectric management all of the transmission generation of power and those attacks for ukraine they've been positioning themselves for a long time to understand those attacks and defend against those and they were able to defend against a much higher percentage than we honestly expected them able to but they still had places they were exploited now you back them up to 2014 when the russians went into crimea they also had an attack against ukraine that went directly against their power grid that took out 2.2 million people's power in december that was down for six weeks What's that look like in a Minnesota, Wisconsin, Dakotas, Michigan, upper Midwest here in the middle of December to have your power down for six weeks, right? That is super painful, and for them it was super painful, and they saw that kind of attack. Now, we've seen added attacks now in this war that we didn't see before, and as an example of that would be attacks directly against agriculture, going against farm equipment, attempting to make sure that they couldn't plant or couldn't harvest a field, mm -hmm. right? So armies 500 years ago marched on their stomach. Well, today they still have to march on their stomach. Yep, and yep. food production, agriculture, is now a humongous target when it comes to cyber warfare. So when you go on an offensive cyber warfare, they're going to come after food. They want to hit granaries, they want to hit dryers, they want to hit silos, they want to hit tractors. And we saw those as operational attacks from the Russians against the Ukraines in this theater war. You know, that's one of the downsides of modernizing everything you've got is it suddenly becomes vulnerable to new kinds of attack. 
I'm going to mention here the, that we are listening that you are listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Today we're from Bloomington, Minnesota at the 12th annual Cybersecurity Summit. I'm Bruce Moore alongside my co-host Joe Moravchik, and we are talking to Sean Riley, who has served the state of North Dakota for six years as its Chief Information Officer. So I'd like to I'd like to get a little technical for a minute if we could. Sure. Um, in in the popular press, we often hear about different kinds of attacks, mm. and I'd like to briefly cover at least some of the the ones we most people have heard of. Sure. Uh, what do we mean by a mal- malware attack? What is that targeting? Yeah. So malware uh, malware is short for malicious software, and that malicious software in Days of old, people would talk about worms and viruses, and that's mostly what they would talk about. Today, malware can be this kind of comprehensive bucket for all kinds of bad things. So there is software today that will hijack your cell phone. It can completely take over your phone, listen to everything that you are talking through, grab your text messages, grab messages you get from different apps, and send that information back. Malware can be that major, but it can also be something that is uh, more designed to just steal location information specifically for selling it to advertisers, right? Uh, Malware comes in all kinds of forms, and rather than looking at all these different kinds of forms, we just stick it in one big package. This is any piece of software that's intended to be malicious falls under that malware and anything that causes harm or causes again some task to happen that you did not intend that is really at all false to malware okay i think um, i think my phone is infected even as we speak mm. um my next question then would be about uh, something we hear a lot about especially in relation to hospitals and schools yes. is ransomware ransomware what, yes. what can you tell us about ransomware and particularly north dakota's experience with it yeah, ransomware has been really the uh, the recent scourge here for the last, say, four or five, six years now. Uh, it is becoming more and more uh, intelligent. And what ransomware is, is ransomware is a piece of malware. It's a specific type of malware that is installed on your computer and can be installed through one of many, many different ways. But once it's on your computer, we'll search your system for any kind of data that it's able to ascertain, sends that data back to a bad actor, and then will encrypt your entire hard drive and basically pops up with a big red message, typically, that blinks at you that says, ha, 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 we have stolen all your stuff, and we are locking it down, and you can no longer access it, and the only way to get it back is a ransom payment. And that ransom payment can come in any kinds of forms. They use all sorts of ways to be able to try to process a ransom payment. But what they're doing is they're holding your data hostage. And oftentimes what you'll find is organizations don't have a proper backup. They don't maybe understand what data they have. Maybe they don't know what they actually might have had on that system. So there's a lot of freak out with that. Now, if it happens to somebody's desktop, that's a pain. That's bad. But when it happens to servers sitting, as you mentioned, in hospitals, in cities, in counties, at universities, we've seen this pretty much every single industry has had to deal with this. 
we'll see organizations like universities around the country that have had, say, their entire engineering school, their entire engineering college, got hit with a ransomware and completely shut down. We've seen counties where their their tax record systems were locked out and disappeared. We've seen schools where they went after the grades and they were able to lock down the grades. And one school in particular here uh, across the country, this was not a North Dakota school nor a Minnesota school. This was a different state. Mm -hmm. But this specific school had about 25,000 kids in their school. The ransomware was very comprehensive. They were able to lock down all the kids' records across the board. And they said, hey, school, you owe us $2.5 million, and you can have your records back. And the school says, we don't have it. We can't pay it. So what the bad actors did is they then started going directly to the parents and saying, if you want your kid to go to college, you owe us ten grand to get their records back. And they started ransoming on a one-to-one basis, student-to-student, parent-to-parent, trying to get that back. Now, this has happened. This has been a very, very nasty kind of thing. We've also seen this in medical institutions around the country where the ransomer, one that was very, very public out in California, was all over everywhere. The ransomer locked down the entire medical record for the entire hospital. And as you read before, I came from Mayo Clinic. I'm very, very aware how this impacts a medical center. But what ends up happening is when that happens, right, you walk in as a patient and the doctor looks at you and says, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. What did we do for you last time? And that's it. They've got nothing, right? They have none of your medical record information. They have no idea what your conditions are. They don't know what your medications are. They don't know when your next surgery is going to be. They know nothing about you. And they have no accessibility to be able to help you. So these things, these ransomwares, can be incredibly impactful and really, really painful for organizations. And they're relatively easy to defend against. But once it happens, if it gets by your defenses, it really sucks to be able to do the cleanup. Indeed. I I can remember uh, having friends whose personal computers were attacked with ransomware, which seems like a small target compared to a school. It also makes me think maybe punch cards weren't such a bad thing to have. <laughs> well, it's, it's always the same problem, right? So I've had, uh, I've had politicians say to me, said, well, Sean, the best thing we can do for all this technology stuff is shut it all down and go back to paper, right? And, <laughs> and I've, I kind of smile at that and I go, I, look, I understand how this works uh, in, in folks' mind, but what kind of amazing advances have we had with technology and the reality is, is no matter what it is, right? I mean, I've got this cell phone sitting next to me. I can do all kinds of things that no one could ever dream we could ever do 20 years ago. And at the same time, it's a risk. It's a threat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a car. It's a wonderful thing to be able to transport myself around, but at the same time, I could crash myself and kill myself. You never mm-hmm. know, right? Yeah. Uh, everything has this amazing benefit and this amazing threat. And I think one of the most important things, and this is something that is as really set North Dakota apart is educating everyone, not just the people in computer science, not just the people in cybersecurity, educating everyone across the board about the benefits of technology and the risks that it manages. And this is one of the things we've done in North Dakota is we are one of the only states in the union. In fact, I think we're still the only state that has computer science and cyber science education kindergarten through PhD. Every student, every school 
across the board gets computer science and cyber science education in one fashion, shape, or form. And sometimes that's integrated to other other aspects of education, their sciences, their maths, their their uh, reading, writing, arithmetic kind of stuff. But everybody gets it. And I do not expect under any circumstance every single kid to graduate and be a cyber scientist, right? But when they do graduate and become a nurse or a doctor or a farmer or an engineer or they just want to work at Applebee's their entire life, no matter what career they are, right? I look around this table. You're working with a computer right there. I'm looking at, you know, in this room. We can't do our job. You name me any job anywhere that doesn't use a computer today, and the only one anyone ever comes up with has Amish in front of it, right? Amish butter churner, right? I love the Amish, right? In Minnesota, there's a lot of great Amish folks here in Minnesota. Um, in fact, I live next to several wonderful people, not big on technology, right? That's okay. But that's the only set of jobs you'll find in this world today that doesn't use technology to enhance and improve the, the work they're doing. And that's part of what we've got to get to, is we've got to get to that education. I, I have to throw in a quick personal on that one. I actually worked on an Osborne, which was an early portable. Yeah. And the picture that I had hanging in my military office was of a cover of a magazine that showed an Afghani soldier or freedom fighter sitting in front of a battery-operated Osborne. Yep. So, yeah, computers have been infiltrating every line of work since time one. Yep. Anyway. I've got a couple education questions for you. Please, fire. I know that you support and advocate for computer science education. You just brought it up. When is the optimal time to start a computer science education? Should we be starting with kindergarten and first grade, perhaps? Do we have enough students graduating in computer science education, cybersecurity education, to fill the technology jobs that are out there today? So when should we start? We should start the second we hand them a, a device, right? I mean, how many, how many parents have you seen that hand their two-year-old or hand their three-year-old a tablet to go play with, right? They're playing with these tablets, and all of a sudden that parent has no idea the risk that they just handed that kid, right? They'll, mm-hmm. they'll put their kid on a bicycle and absolutely make sure they've got a bicycle helmet, right, and give them knee pads and shoulder pads and put them in a hockey uniform, right, so they fall over, they don't get scraped up. But you hand them a tablet that has directed access to every other person on the entire planet without understanding what the risk of that? Really? I mean, that just kind of blows my mind that people are willing to hand their kids this incredibly powerful tool without understanding the risk. And most of the time that's because the parent has no idea of the risk, right? So part of what we have to do is is our initiative in North Dakota is called PK20W. It sounds like a sounds like a code word, right, for some secret Area 52 project. But uh, but what it is, it's it's pre-kindergarten through PhD plus workforce. And what we've done now is is we've integrated this across the entire state platform. So that three-year-old, four-year-old who's getting the tablet, they're getting education now. How does that work in that, right? Everybody's like, well, we're going to talk about multi-factor authentication and blah, blah, and they want to talk about nerdy things. And go, no, 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 no. When you talk to a kindergarten, right, is it good to share? Yes, sharing's good, right? Is it good to share all the time on your computer? Eh, maybe not, right? Some things we want to share, some things we don't, right? And we walk through that at the level of the child so that they understand my password should be mine because some things are mine and only mine 
but other things I can share, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a more nuanced aspect of how we engage our education. It's something I would love to see in Minnesota. I've been trying to help Minnesota do this for a long time. Uh, but there's a lot, a lot of states out there that are doing this. And North Dakota is the centerpiece, but every state should be doing this. Wow. Uh, the second part of the question was about do we have enough computer science, cybersecurity folks graduating to fill technology jobs that are out there? Yeah, today, today this is... Uh, this is a little more nuanced question, right? So it's, it's the right question to ask, and I'll tell you, the answer needs to be a little more blended. So in today's world, people look at cybersecurity jobs open, right? There's 2.2 million cybersecurity jobs open worldwide right now, right now, right? We absolutely need more workforce there. Do we need more workforce in technologists as well? Yes, we do. But the... The more pertinent aspect isn't MIS degrees. It isn't bachelor's in cyber science. It is that the technology aspect is integrated in all of the conversations across education, right? I have an MBA and an MHA, so I have two master's degrees, right? The two master's degrees I had, I have a ton of financial knowledge that was put into those programs. And I had all kinds of finance program classes that I went through. I don't know that I went through a single technology class, right? Is finance important? Absolutely it's important. You show me a business today that doesn't have to care about finance, I'll show you the same business that doesn't have to care about tech. They don't exist. Neither one of them exists, right? They have to care about those things. And my MBA didn't have any technical credits to it, really, or my MHA really had very little to no technical credits to it. I learned all that stuff separately, right? And what we've got to do is, is we integrate technology directly in education universally, then, frankly, the need for cybersecurity analysts plummets. Why? Because if the population knows not to click on the stupid phishing emails, we don't need anywhere near as many cybersecurity analysts. And from a technical standpoint, I'll give you an example. My daughter, my daughter is going into, uh, she's going into biology. She's in actually genetics and what's called synbio, synthetic biology. She's a really big science nerd, loves her science classes. The very first class she had at her university was Python. Python, for anybody who doesn't know, is a language that is used in the sciences to develop their testing parameters for all of these different aspects of their biological sciences, right? So the first class, and I'm like, thank you. Please put that in everybody's classware, right? That, that's the kind of stuff that would actually fix this problem, not just more cybersecurity people, but educating the population so I don't need as many cybersecurity people. That's interesting. I worked with Python, and I remember that R was a big language at Mayo. Yep. And if you're going to be at all relevant to the fields, you have to speak the languages that they do, uh, both in the computer sense and in the, you know, the terminology sense. Yep. Uh, otherwise, you're just on the outside waiting for something to happen. Absolutely. Cool. You mentioned the PK20W initiative. What is cyber madness? Sounds like a great competition for high school and middle school students. So, so Cyber Madness. So, you know, this is one of those things. I'll, I'll get myself in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. What, what do parents really get excited about with their kids, right? What, what super excites parents with their kids? Yes, it's education. Yes, it's academics. 
but it's really sports, right? They get super excited about football. Everybody shows up at the football tournament. How many of the parents show up at the spelling bee? Some of them, yeah, I did. But, you know, I don't see academic triathlons having stadiums of 50,000 high school kids, right? You see football having it. So how do you solve this aspect? You turn cybersecurity into a sport. And now cyber madness is the very first, as far as we know, worldwide state high school championship for cybersecurity. And we had a state high school championship last year where we had uh, teams competing to get down to finals, and we had 15 teams in our finals all competing together, boys and girls together, uh, different school classes. So in, in North Dakota, ABC or BA class schools, in Minnesota, A through 6A, right? Uh, in a Minnesota environment i'll give you the comparison what we saw in north dakota we saw the class a schools against the class six schools and the class a schools wiping the ground with the class six schools it was awesome to see right where it didn't matter how big or small your school was because the teams and the development was on a hugely equal footing we in north dakota the very first school to sign up was a tribal nation school so tribal nation signed up uh, bought a team. That team actually, I, if I remember right, ended up fourth in the state. Uh, super competitive, amazing school, right? No one's at a disadvantage in this sense. But we turned cybersecurity into a sport, and we've got kids competing. They had a great time. It was great. You can go watch the videos. can go all these videos we had of these kids out there. That's the kind of thing that will actually turn the corner on this cyber conversation down the road because robotics has become a sport now and that's that's huge right mm -hmm. uh clay shooting right is, is the fastest growing sport in the country for kids and parents love this go in and see their kids compete and this is a wonderful thing kids especially the kids who have been always kind of the the nerd kids i was one of those nerd kids now i played football i ran track the whole thing but a lot of the nerd kids they don't necessarily have an athletic sport that always appeals to them right well here's a athletic sport in one way but it's a mental sport it's something that's awesome they can come and compete and play with drones and try to take over little robots and go after each other's computers and then also learn how to defend their community and defend their nation again as as actual competition so that's that's what cyber madness is it's changing the conversation from a nerdy academic topic into an actual sport for kids to play a competitive environment that they can play in Yes. Kids love to do that, you know. That's oh, their favorite pastime. I, mean. I, I was blown away. So, like I said, this has never been done before. So we had a team from all over the world who came in to help do this. So we had a person from France, another one from England. We had lots and lots of Americans there, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but folk, folks were all over the world who were there because they had never seen this before. They had never seen state high school championship. Wow. We didn't really entirely know what to expect. And it was a four-day event for me, three-day for the kids, uh, and went through and ran the event, and it was it was ridiculously awesome, right? So they're reflecting knowledge, they're attackers, they're defenders, they're getting nation-state attacker information. They have to figure out, how do I defend against North Korea? How do I defend against Russia? And then they put them in the other side and go, I am Russia. What am I doing? You know, uh -huh. How do I get through? Right? Uh -huh. uh, this amazing environment. And the kids just loved it. I mean, I never saw... 
a single kid who wasn't engaged the entire time. It was just, it was great. And the coaches sitting there, shaking, nervous, you know, just like they'd be at a volleyball game or a football game. Yeah, it was yeah. just, it was great. It was awesome to see. I, I can see the coach's fingers twitching like he's on the keyboard oh, trying yeah, to do yeah, the yeah. work for yeah. the kid. You yeah. know, but you can't yeah. do it. They got to do yeah. it. That's fun. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate that uh, effort by the, that you're doing because that's, that's one of the big problems is we kind of isolate sometimes the geeks. Yes. And the, the less we isolate them, the more they become integrated into what we're all doing, the better off we all are. Uh, well, no and, doubt about it. Because and, and I, I thought it was amazing. So one of the schools, one of the kids uh, was also uh, in the wrestling finals. And the wrestling finals were Friday. They drove out to the wrestling finals. He did his wrestling. And they drove back the four hours to make sure he could compete Saturday and Sunday at the tournament for Cyber Madness. Oh, right? And this is how much this kid who is a geek and an athlete at the same time, yeah. wanted to be able to compete in Cyber Madness because it was an eight-hour round-trip drive for these guys to be able to go out, do his wrestling, come back again, and they made sure he did it. And his parents were like, hell yeah, we're doing that. So Cool. Yeah. Keep, keep them all involved. Sean, I've read a personal value of yours has been, how can I help the world? Yes. Where can I make the biggest impact to do good? What is the origin of this value to make the biggest impact to do good? Yeah, so I I have a whole story to me, and uh, you know those people who follow follow kind of where I come from and know some of that. Uh, and if you want the whole story, you can go see the TED Talk or some of the speeches I've done on this. But uh, I I started a company when I was 16. I sold that company when I was 19, and people when they hear that they go oh wow you must be brilliant blah 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 and they, they always kind of throw the accolades but i started a company when i was 16 not because i was super smart but because my parents had addiction issues and mental health issues and frankly i was the eldest of five kids and the five of us liked to eat and my parents weren't necessarily able to provide that and we lived in an environment that was extraordinarily challenging i use the word entertaining i use it wrong i know but um it was a complicated upbringing and people in the community you mentioned lanesboro minnesota there were people in the community who knew right it's a little town 800 900 people at that point maybe barely a thousand now even uh they saw a kid who was trying and I wasn't always the best kid. I wasn't always in the right place. Uh, but I had some knowledge, and some people tried to help me. And I was able to escape that situation personally, and my two brothers and my two sisters were able to escape that, per- that situation because people in the community tried to do something for us. And I was able to start a company. I, it's not like I was smart enough to even know what the hell starting a company meant, right? at the age of 16, but it was successful enough to be able to launch the next career, and by the time I was 22, I was ended up being the guardian of, of one of my sisters and two of my brothers, and at that point, uh, you know, it's uh, September of 2001, all of us were old enough to remember September 2001 for other reasons, but you back up a week from 9-11, you get to September the 4th, 2001, uh, my, I, I had bought a duplex in Rochester, Minnesota. I was living in the upstairs. This is compliments to the company that I had had. 
and uh, I'm just laying on my couch, and all of a sudden, I hear this rustling on the back deck, and I go outside, and I look, and here's my father standing there, two of my brothers and my sister, and my father's got this black garbage bag. He drops it on the deck, and he says, they're your problem now, and he walks down the stairs, he gets in his car, and squeals his tires around the corner, and poof, gone. That's it. Uh, and I'm standing there with three kids, and I have no clue, right? I'm 22 at that point, and I, so it's 16, 14, and 12-year-olds. No clue what the hell to do. I, had, I didn't even know what school district I was in. I didn't know there was such a thing as a middle school. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I went to Lanesboro. It was K through 12. I didn't even know what a middle school was. Right. Um, the community helped me. People who I knew helped us. They helped us to get through things. There were people in the school district who helped us. There was people in Lanesboro who helped us. And I hit a point where I started realizing, it took me some time to realize this, but I started realizing that it should not be my mission to conquer the world. It should be my mission to try to find ways to help the world. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I left IBM to go to Mayo Clinic, uh, because I saw it as an opportunity to provide better uh, to do what I could, because not not that I, anything wrong with IBM, but Mayo is built around healthcare, and I stayed in that environment for a long time. And when Governor Burgum uh, needed a crazy CIO, and and my mm-hmm. name came up, uh, he explained to me all of these different ways he really truly believed that we could help people. And when I heard that, I'm like, yes, sir, I'm in. So I've been driving. 16 hours a week. I've got a place down in southeast Minnesota. I have another place in Mandan, North Dakota, which is just across the river from Bismarck. Mm-hmm. I, dri- you know, I drive down on Thursdays, drive back up on Sundays, because uh, my wife and my kids are still down here, mm-hmm. going back and forth. Um, you know, Took a pay cut to buy a second house to do all this time, and everybody looks at me like I'm totally back crap crazy, and mm-hmm. I am a little bit. I get that. Um, but all of them under the belief that... Uh, I did all of this under the belief that we can make the world a better place. And that's what I do. And that's where I go. I go wherever I see the mission that we can do bigger, better things for the world. And that's what I do. So I don't, I don't chase a paycheck. I chase outcomes. I want to create value. I want to create a better world. And probably a way longer answer than you wanted for all that. So sorry. But, you know, I also read that... I think you've called yourself an IT guy from the time yes. you were really young. Yes. So computer science has always been with you. Yes. When did you decide to make cybersecurity a career? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really understand cybersecurity was a career. In fact, I didn't really understand IT was a career. So the first time I got my hands on a computer was, was actually one of those people, the community. So uh, Mr. Albright, who's a fifth-grade teacher... And we live, again, we lived in a little town. Everybody knew what was going on, but nobody really knew what to do about it. So they tried to help the kids, but they didn't know exactly how to, how to help all the time. Um, Mr. Albright had an old Apple style, not really an Apple yet, but computer that didn't have any hard drive, didn't have any memory to it, right? It literally took a tape that you snapped this little tape in to have any kind of data collection to it. And he, he dropped it off at the house and said, hey, you know, I bet your, bet your son would like this, you know. Uh, 
a little while later, he brought me a book, and it was uh, Coding Computers in Color, right? So it gives you an idea how old I am now, but he was, right? <laughs> Granted, the book was a lot older than I am. I was in, yeah, I was pretty young still, uh, second grade when I first started doing this stuff. And, and I'm looking through this book, and by the time I'm in fourth grade, I can do basic programming. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and basic, and uh, not fundamental, but basic, the language, right? So basic mm-hmm. was a specific language then. And I could code, and I could make little solitaire games, and I could make little card games, and I thought this was kind of cool. So Mr. Albright ended up actually running computers for the Lanesboro School District. And later, he put me in a place where he's like, here, go learn this, go learn this. And there's this other uh, teacher who uh, I remember as a Mrs. Johnson. Some people tell me that's not what her name was, but that's who I remember. And uh, so we roll around to about ninth grade. And there was a Novell Netware system that was the network. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, think of uh, the most antiquated chisel and chalkboard kind of thing you could get in computers of the day. But it connected all these computers. And here I'm a ninth grader, and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, this girl over here, she's really cute. You know how I'm going to impress this girl? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal her password because, hey, that's going to impress her. Yeah. What, what do you think when you're ninth grader, right? You're not, you're not smart. I wasn't smart. Um, so I figured out how to hack the network, and it was pretty straightforward. And I stole her password and got in her account. And I'm like, ha, 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 you know, I'm getting attention from this girl. Well, Mrs. Johnson, who was the uh, teacher, she gets told, of course, right? And she comes flying around the corner, and I'm about 5'10". She was barely nose high on me. And now I've, I've gained a ton of weight since I'm old now, but at the time I was, I was a, a beefy but all-muscle kid, right? Yeah. So I was about 150 pounds, football player, blah, 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 muscular kid. I'm solidly double her width, right? She's a very, very, like, little pine tree scrawny teacher, <laughs> barely up to my nose. And she comes at me, and very blonde hair, seeing on her face just beet red, just just she's gonna take me apart and i'm like oh great here it comes right and she's got her finger in my face and her finger's going back and forth but nothing coming out of her mouth yet and it's going and a finger and a finger and she looks at me and you can see and she's about to rip me up and she looks at me and she goes how would you fix it <laughs> i'm like i have no idea and she goes fix it make it so no one else can do that oh wow you got to be okay. an early black hat yeah so I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea that I was a black hat or a white hat or anything of the nature. And in today's world, right, most teachers eh, would have expelled me and I would have gone, right? Uh, and she probably would have been in her right right there to expel me, but she didn't. She said, how would you fix it? And so I went, cool, let's fix the computer. And I did. And I fixed the network and I set up a different batch routine so we couldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then because I kind of enjoyed this stuff and because... Other people thought it was cool that I could bust into passwords. Um, they then, we had a speech class in 10th grade. And for speech, I rolled a computer down into the front of the classroom. And I sat down on my thing. And for my speech, I said, so, who thinks their English grade sucks? And that was the class we were giving a speech in. And a uh, kid by the name of Ryan, hand right up in the air. I'm getting a D in this lousy class. You know, and the teacher's smiling, but go like, what is he doing? Well, I turn around, and 
you know, I hack my way into the network in under two minutes, and I'm inside the school system, and I go, so Ryan D. Daniel, or whatever, you, you know, whatever the name was, and, uh, yep, yep, this is my name, and I, all right, here he is, and what do you think you should be getting in this class? <laughs> As the teacher's staring at me, and everybody's like, what? And, and he goes, why? I think I should get a B in here. Okay, how about a B plus? B plus, boom, save, and I'm out. I could have used that in law school. (laughs) (laughs) So here I do this in front of the classroom, and all of a sudden this became a thing, and all all of a sudden they're like, wait, 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 how did you do this? And and, yeah, it's a 10th grade speech. Uh, From there, it became apparent there was value to this. And as I got older and I started doing it, I, I kept doing normal tech, but always having the cyber background. Uh, kept on doing a lot of other cyber things, and as I went uh, with IBM, I did neuro-linguistic programming, and I was a social engineer, and my job was to walk onto DOD sites to talk my way into them, which was so physical, physical aspect, and then later, after 9-11, that became directed cyber. So Mm -hmm. it's just always been part of my career, and it's been something I've learned is essential, right? If you cannot defend your data, you can't trust it. If you can't defend your systems, you can't automate them. If you can't defend your environments, you can't rely on them. And that's been part of what we've been doing my whole career, and it's part of the reason why we made cyber critical and the centerpiece of everything we do. Okay, I want to ask one kind of trick, not trick question, just one that I always (laughs) like to ask when we're getting into really technical stuff. Sure. A lot of our listeners, a lot of their exposure is through Hollywood. Is there a, are there any movies that you would highly recommend as being really true to the spirit of what you're involved with? No. <laughs> there you go, no. listeners. Remember, Hollywood doesn't get it right, and it's much worse than you think it is. Uh, okay, so Hollywood, uh, everyone is always prettier than reality, right? Uh, um, possible. Uh, Angelina Jolie back in that old Hackers movie, and they're going to hack the Gibson, right? Yeah. Gibson doesn't even exist. There never was a Gibson, right? In fact, people made a Gibson after the movie just so they could say there was a Gibson. But, oh, yeah, yeah, we're never as pretty as that. All the amazing music that's always going on in the background, no. Granted, when they're drinking a ton of caffeine, yes, we are doing that. But that's about <laughs> the only component that's actually accurate in most of these movies. Okay, very so, cool. Yeah. Son, we've got about seven minutes left couple more questions sure i know that you have an appreciation for studying history you're a history interpreter after all i think about how much has changed during the 20th century in the united states and i think about how much has changed in my lifetime technology above our technology alone in the last 30 years i'd imagine in the next 30 40 50 years we're going to see extraordinary changes in computer science and technology what are a few of the big changes on the horizon (laughs) <laughs> oh, the the future is going to be amazing. So we we see this stuff every day right now. Artificial intelligence is going to be huge. And we see things around robotics that's going to be huge. And we see the ability for technology to do more and more and more. But let me let me give people something to kind of to grab onto. So when you get to the year 1900, right? Everybody, if you if you picked up a newspaper in the year 1900 that was thinking in the way that we think today, that newspaper would have said something like this. It would say, 95% of all jobs will be gone by the year 1920, right? And that's what that newspaper would have said. And it would have been right. 
Why? Because in the year 1900, when we dug a hole, we dug a hole with 100 guys with shovels. By the year 1920, when we dug a hole, we dug a hole with a bulldozer. Right? In the year 1900, we started industrializing mechanically. Right? We started changing the world to machine-driven systems to replace work that sucked. Right? Work that was painful, that hurt your back, that took a ton of labor, and we replaced that work. Right? And today, all of us live with those things. We've, we see the bulldozers, we see the snow plows, we see those machines. You've got them in your home. Washing machines, dishwashers, dryers. Right? Anybody got a washboard at home anymore right? and go down to the river to do their laundry once a week? Does anybody do that? No. Right? We've taken those machines and replaced work that we didn't want to do anyway and let the machine do it, right? And today, people are freaking out. Oh, AI, it's going to kill us all. You know, and it's just this just drives me nuts. <laughs> the world in 1900 went through the same transformation through mechanical. Today, we are not replacing muscle, which is what we replaced then. Today we're replacing mind, right? And now everybody's freaking out. Oh, the machines are going to be smarter than us, and the machines will run the universe, and blah, and blah. Nobody will have a job, and it's the same crap that we heard 100 years ago. The difference today, right, is not the aspect of physical labor, but it's redundant, commodity, repeating, predictable, mundane, boring work, right? How many of us have work that we do over and over and over again with a computer today that none of us want to do anyway, right? How many people have to do data entry today? How many people are going and doing something they're like, oh, well, we got to complete this function, whatever it is, because we always do this. Every quarter I've got to do this for my reports or every year I got to do this for my report. How much value does that add to society today? It gives you a job. It gives something to do. But is that what you want to do? How many people hate their jobs because it's boring as hell, right? What this AI technology will change over the next 20, 30 years is we will get rid of commodity, repeating, mundane, boring work. And as that goes away, what will that leave people? Higher value work, right? Let you think more. Let you create more. Let you become more. It will take away the annoying small things that we've been doing, right? Does anybody miss the washboard in their home? <laughs> Nobody misses it. Nobody wanted to do that anyway, right? And yet, oh, look at all the people who don't get washboards anymore. Oh, yeah, that's, this is a horrible argument, right? It's gone. <laughs> and computers now, they've got that same thing. We can take away the washboard stuff that you have to do with your mind, right? This stuff that's repeat, repeating and sucks. That's what we're going to see in this amazing technology that's coming over the next 30 years. Wow. The Luddites are going to be out in force. <laughs> Last question for you today, Sean. Yeah. I really enjoyed researching your background. And I just this topic, I just really enjoyed researching this week to get ready. Is it true that 100% of adults have been targeted, perhaps hacked? Um, if so... I mean, here we're surrounded by cybersecurity professionals, hundreds of them. But a lot of people who might be listening are not cybersecurity professionals. What is the best advice to protect themselves against hacking? Yeah, so our 
are 100% of people targeted? They're not necessarily targeted, but have they been breached in one way, shape, or form over the last five years? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there may be one or two people that are out there, but we're literally talking about enough to count on your hands. More often than not in today's world, not every bit of what's breached is controllable by you, right? So that is one of the biggest problems right now is you don't necessarily own all of your personal information downstream, right? That's where a lot of the breach information comes from. That's where a lot of things are get to be complicated. So for yourself, though, the simple things that you can do, right, is minimize the footprint of the data that is actually important to you, right? Don't use your social security number unless you absolutely have to, right? Don't put your cell phone number in unless you absolutely have to. Have two email accounts. One is for all the eh, stuff that you don't care about and one that's for stuff you really do, right? Uh, when you're getting emails, make sure to look at those emails with an objective eye, right? Is this expected? Is this something I would think this person would send me? Hey, they just sent me this amazing dancing kitty file. Is a dancing kitty normally come from this person? Well, one of my sisters, yes, totally. My other sister, totally not, right? I mean, uh, paying attention to those things because still today the easiest breach form is phishing emails, right? And that's phishing with a PH. That's the attack type where they're sending you an email that looks legitimate, but it's not legitimate, right? Don't click the links unless you know where you're going, right? For me, my, myself, when I get any email, even if I know it's real and it's got a link in it, I don't click the link. I go to the website separately. I keep my own bookmarks separately, right? Simple way to make sure that I don't have those issues out there. But it is, it is a very challenging world. But minimizing your risk comes with keeping the data that's really, truly important as close to you as you can. Yep. And then simply avoiding a lot of the inbound attacks like phishing. It's a matter of uh, losing trust if we don't do this. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we get a little suspicious. and we, I, I'm the same as you. I, I haven't clicked on a link in an email for decades. Yep. Since they invented email, since email came on punch cards. <laughs> it's been a great hour of radio. Fascinating. But we've only got so much time, so we've got to end our show today. Sean, Bruce and I want to thank you for your time, your insights, uh, your commitment to your career. Uh, wonderful conversation. Wonderful. Yeah, one of, one of the best. Well, thank, thank you, guys. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, thank you for allowing me to kind of go off on my stories here. Um, oh, that was the fun. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly important for society and our citizens and all the residents of all of our states everywhere to to think about this. And, and I just hope everybody continues to strive for bigger and better things. These the wonderful personal stories that wonderful. added so much to the program. Thank you for sharing Thank that. you. Yep, thank you. Okay, well, that will conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Don't forget to join us next week as we look into nuclear power, threat, or menace. It is our hope that Public Policy This Week is a radio program that inspires important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. 
Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.